1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another book on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Richard Thompson Ford about his fascinating book titled Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History, published by Simon and Schuster in 2021. This is, um, kind of as the title states, about the history of the laws of fashion, but that Definitely does not do justice to the really cool things that are in this book, exploring how clothing is about identity and status, how that's changed over the centuries, um, how we get to today's ideas of menswear and womenswear, uh, the politics and the law that are wrapped up in all of these things that maybe we sometimes take for granted. So Richard, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
2: Before we dive into the many fascinating aspects of the book, though, could you maybe start us off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explaining how you got to this book?
1: Sure. So I'm a law professor, and among the things I teach are civil rights, anti-discrimination law. I also teach a local government course that's about urbanism and the history and importance of cities and urban development. and those topics. Got me interested in two things. One is a look at the importance of culture, popular culture, in everyday life—the way law affects everyday life. Because typically, um, when people think about legal theory, they think about big constitutional law cases, you know, big momentous cases uh, that change the our understanding of, let's say, human rights. Um, but I'm interested in the way law affects everyday life and smaller things that people may not notice. Also, in the context of anti-discrimination law and civil rights, a surprising number of cases involved dress codes in one way or another, disputes over rules about what people could wear, um, gendered dress codes that some um, men and women would resist, um, dress codes that regulated grooming and hairstyles that um, some, for instance, African-Americans would resist, dress codes that prohibited um, natural hairstyles or hairstyles that were suitable to the texture of African-American hair. Lots of cases about dress codes, religious dress codes, high school students resisting dress codes and asserting their um, rights to freedom of expression. And all of these cases, uh, one of the things that struck me about these cases was that the court's didn't do a very good job, in my view, in understanding what was really at stake in these cases about dress codes. They tended to um, look at dress and fashion as trivial. Um, And sometimes the courts would even say, well, obviously, this is trivial, um, except for the fact that it might affect um, some more important thing like the freedom of expression or um, race discrimination, for instance. And I thought that was wrong, um, that people weren't fighting and risking getting kicked out of school or losing their jobs over something that was trivial. And so I wanted to explore the history of rules and regulations about dress to get a sense of what was really at stake, why everyone was fighting over this um, in a context where at the same time that people were fighting over it, um, they were also always saying, well, it's trivial,
2: that's a very good sort of set of questions and curiosities uh, that I can see really drove, drove this book, um, which kind of leads to the sort of obvious question of if everyone's talking about this, or a lot of people are talking about this in terms of triviality, um, w- why then are there so many rules? If it's trivial, why bother putting all these rules into place at all?
1: Yes, exactly. That's the question that I wanted to answer. And What was useful to me was to go back in history to a period of time where people were more explicit about why they were regulating dress. Because in today's environment, everyone says it's trivial, although we still all care about it. Um, So when you go back in history, you find that um, clothing is a way of expressing social status uh, and identity and group membership. And it becomes very, a very important way for people to kind of construct a persona that's visible and that's legible in a social sphere. So when you go back to, um, for instance, Tudor-era England, there are elaborate sumptuary laws and what were called acts of apparel, and they were designed to regulate what people could wear according to their social status. So, you know, the kind of stereotypical version is only the king can wear ermine or crimson um, velvet. But they were much more elaborate than that. They would have great uh, details and gradations of who could wear what. Um, And those laws sometimes would tell you in a preamble why they were passing the law. And so one, for instance, said because of great confusion as to the, I'm paraphrasing, but um, great confusion as to, The identification of persons according to their titles, eminences, and degrees, um, causing great disorder in the realm, we passed this act of apparel. So they were quite upfront about saying the issue was you can't tell who's who in the social hierarchy because people are dressing in ways that would suggest a social status that they don't occupy. Um, And that was the first way into getting at to why there are so many rules around clothing, because we're expressing something, and people wanted to be sure that what we were expressing was, in some sense, accurate.
2: Interesting, because I think we we don't always link those things. We don't always go back in history and think about what the impacts might be to today. And that's, I think, one of the powers of the book is making those links between the history and the sort of ways we think now. Um, And I sort of want to ask about the going back into history, because that's always A really tricky question, right? How far back does one go? Um, And what do you try and do with it? So you've mentioned Tudor England, um, but the book really begins in the 14th century. How did you pick that? Why is that the starting point?
1: Yes. Well, when I first started writing the book, I was planning to write a book about the 20th century. But to get answers, I found myself being drawn further back into history. And the 14th century turned out to be a great time to begin the discussion for two related reasons. One is many historians would describe the late Middle Ages, around the 14th century, as the birth of modernity, the moment in which a modern sensibility in terms of how people thought about themselves and their relationship to society emerged, um, the beginning of our own era. In addition, and I don't think this is coincidental, the 14th century is also period of time in which many fashion historians describe as the birth of fashion and a few things are happening one is that tailoring at least in europe is becoming widespread and a technology that's used to create clothing that is not only form-fitting but also quite expressive that's able to create kind of sculptured shapes um, so you can think of puffy shoulders or large ruffs around the neck or um trousers that balloon in various ways. So tailoring is really taking off. Before that, most European attire was draped and both sexes wore draped clothing. But in the 14th century, you begin to get this tailored clothing, but particularly for men. Um, all these innovations early came from men first, but um, tailored clothing that was quite expressive. So... Those two things made the 14th century a great period to start, and one of the things that you begin to see in the 14th century is that clothing becomes a way for people to express not only social status, as I mentioned before, but also individual identity. So a new ideal of individualism is beginning to come into shape, and fashion not only reflects that individuality, I can now express myself through tailored clothing, but also I would argue, advances and contributes to the emergence of a modern individualist sensibility.
2: All right. Those are pretty good reasons to start where you've started. <laughs> that <laughs> makes rather a lot of sense. Um, but there's still quite a big gap, obviously, between that time period in terms of what people actually wore and sort of how we think of modern fashion. And in some senses, you know, thinking of the big roughs Um, of the Mm -hmm. Tudor period or thinking of the strange hose poofy things on their legs that men wore back then Um, that doesn't exactly scream modern you know the other idea (laughs) of kind of people having like five dresses that they wear for multiple years um, people not bathing that often you know there's a whole lot of reasons that on the face of it that doesn't exactly seem to have a whole lot of links to now so Mm -hmm. when did modern fashion emerge and I guess more importantly what enabled modern fashion to emerge?
1: Ah, yes. And so, um, when I used the term modern, then you know, I used it in a kind of specific way, meaning um, you, you know, the, the the move from the ancient world to a particular kind of modern sensibility that includes, again, things like individualism, um, a humanism, and you know, a different relationship of human beings to a society that we probably would say kind of reached um, a high point in the enlightenment, but I don't mean modern in the sense of contemporary. So when we're thinking about uh, how we got where we are now, yes, absolutely. A lot of things changed. Um, Technologies continued to advance. And so clothing became much more accessible to um, a wider range of people This was particularly true earliest in the United States where um, mass-produced clothing, like the Brooks Brothers suit, for instance, made um, relatively refined clothing available to uh, people from a much greater range of um, incomes and social status than had been true in the past. Uh, And of course, a lot of changes occur in terms of the Relationship that people have to government. So the explicit class hierarchies of the old regimes of Europe through uh, become uh, challenged and overturned in many cases through a variety of revolutions. And what then emerges is a enlightenment sensibility that is at least expressly more egalitarian and more focused on ideals like industriousness and sobriety and rationality. And clothing comes to reflect that. So our clothing is evolving to go along with these political ideals. That's one of the things I want to trace through in the book. And so when you begin with, um, as you say, the ruffs and the trunk hose and the elaborate clothing, this is a way to signify status in societies. That value spectacle, and in which status is a uh, formal, uh, formal uh, attribute. As things move forward, status becomes expressed in much subtler forms, and it's related to again Enlightenment ideals like rationality. So the clothing evolves away from sumptuousness and toward a sort of spare, toned down. Um, clothing. And so our modern sense of fashion is driven uh, in, in a great deal by that. Now I can talk more about um, the, the fashion industry. I, we could talk about that later. But that's an evolution from the early modern period, 14th century forward to contemporary times.
2: We will certainly talk about the current fashion industry a little bit later, but I want to stay on this idea of sort of the evolution um, during the time period that we're sort of talking about And this, um, these ideas of the rationality, efficiency, you know, all of these sobriety, as you said, um, of course, happening in the context of things like the Reformation, um, the Industrial Revolution later on. Uh, And I think one of the things that maybe leads us to think of clothing as trivial is we don't always connect them with these kind of high politics events. Um, but of course you do thankfully in the book. And one of the ways that that comes out is when you very helpfully explain where tailored clothing comes in, where the idea that we've gone from the trunks and the roughs and somehow we've ended up with a suit doesn't really look like the clearest trajectory. So how does that happen?
1: Yes. Well, in the, this late middle ages through the Renaissance, uh, status is expressed through kind of flashy clothing. And so when you look at the sumptuary laws, there are a lot about making sure that only elites can wear sumptuous clothing that is expensive, that's flashy, that expresses a certain kind of magnificence. That's what's valued. Um, and meanwhile, you have an emergent uh, you get skilled artisan and merchant class that's also trying to dress in this very sumptuous and elaborate way. That's one of the reasons that you get these sumptuary laws. Now, when we move forward into history, um, those that expression of magnificence is discredited in many environments. In England, um, Charles the is executed. There's um, you know, there, there are a variety of political changes and revolutions that discredit the idea of aristocratic magnificence and replace it with um, first a religious ideal of asceticism and then also a new kind of aristocratic ideal of um, practicality and sobriety and um, a certain type of freedom. So uh, one example I use in the book is after, um, the, the, there's a moment when it, this change, it, what some scholars describe as the great masculine renunciation. Um, it's, the clothing getting more and more streamlined and it's starting to look more and more like that three piece suit. Um, it's not there yet, but it's starting to move in that direction. Um, uh, English gentlemen are wearing something called a frock coat, which is a precursor to the modern suit jacket. Um, And it's not flashy and elaborate, at least not to the same extent. And this English gentleman's about to travel or travels to France, crosses the uh, the, the channel to France. And um, France is still very much a courtly society with all of the trappings of old world aristocracy. And so as an English aristocrat, he needs to dress in a manner that's befitting an aristocrat in France. And this is what he says. He says... Um, I felt I felt so deprived of my liberty uh, that I felt that I'd been placed in the Bastille, and I longed for my loose little frock coat, for it leaves a man under no great restraint, but allows him to do as he pleases, much as our glorious Constitution. And so I thought that sentence encapsulated the relationship between political idealism and clothing. He had made that link, the frock coat was about freedom and the values of the Enlightenment um, and a lack of constraint, whereas the aristocratic garb of France was constraining and didn't respect um, the individual liberties and made him feel as if he was imprisoned. And so, th- as those kinds of changes spread, the values of the Enlightenment, the values of human rights. Um, you know, egalitarianism to an extent. You know, I don't want to exaggerate that because uh, it's certainly not egalitarianism for everybody. But a leveling of express class hierarchies, the clothing changes along with it, and there's lots of examples of the abandonment of finery, of powdered wigs, of um, of, of trousers with stockings. All of these signify old world aristocracy, and the Something that looks more like the modern suit signifies modernity, rationality, progress, um, industriousness, civic virtue. Uh, ultimately, that evolves into what we now understand as the, um, the three-piece suit or the, the standard business suit.
2: So one aspect of this evolution that I want to make sure we don't uh, accidentally gloss over is color. Because, of course, if we go back and think to the mental image of the ruffs and the trunks and the whatever, um, our image and certainly the actual historical um, texts and documents and paintings show us that men wore a lot of colors. Yes. And yet when we think of the three-piece suit, we have a much narrower palette that we tend to draw from. And so as part of this evolution um, in the sort of types of clothes and the ideas behind it that you've very helpfully just described... These are part of, in a lot of senses, a kind of bigger thing that in the book you call um, the great masculine renunciation, which is a fabulous term. Uh, So what is this? And particularly, why is it the masculine renunciation?
1: Yes, great question. (laughs) So the, mas- the great masculine renunciation occurs as men start to cast off this more elaborate, sumptuous, showy attire in favor of streamlined um, and sober attire. So, you know, lots of things are going on, but to kind of encapsulate it, you have this shift in values in which men no longer want to, elite men, um, no longer want to express their elite status. In terms of um, conspicuous finery and that includes color to be sure so you're moving towards um, blacks grays um, sober a sober palette all of this is reflecting this idea that masculine attire is practical it's about um, dressing appropriately for the occasion without showing off now All of that is indeed a masculine renunciation. So men are expressing these new values. And I want to emphasize that although the great masculine renunciation appears to be a renunciation of luxury, it's actually not. That in fact, elite clothing is equally luxurious, but in a much different way. It's a modern. Um, modernized silhouette, and it's one where all of the uh, elaborate detail is hidden. It's in details of construction, it's in refinement of fabric. Uh, there's a lot going on in a men's suit in order to give it the silhouette that it has, but it's not showy. It's not adornments on the outside, um, it's um, hidden on the inside. And so you're getting the streamlined modern silhouette. Uh, that's only true for men women, on the other hand, continue to express status in the way that both sexes had originally through sumptuousness, elaborate clothing, finery, clothing that's often in many ways physically constraining. And that's part of the point. You'll see women's clothing certainly makes a lot of, um, reflects a lot of changes. But just for an example, um, in the, um, in, in, in the Regency period in England, uh, there's a big neoclassical revival. And what you get for women is a certain type of streamlined clothing, but it's a replication of a Greco-Roman gown. So there's something that's quite fanciful, quite whimsical about the woman's version of neoclassical clothing. The men's version um, doesn't look like Um, an updated version of Greco-Roman clothing. Instead, it copies the silhouette of a Greco-Roman statue in a modernized uh, garment. So men are expressing the future and modernity and their version of neoclassicalism is about the the silhouette of the heroic um, Greco-Roman male form, but it's not a throwback. Women's clothing is a throwback. And, The consequence of that is that in every respect, male attire signifies um, civic virtue, responsible behavior, rationality, um, industriousness, all the things that you want in leadership. Whereas women's clothing signifies status through um, sumptuousness, vanity, adornment, frivolity, uh, whimsy. Things that you wouldn't want in a leader. So the great masculine renunciation is very much about a change in the way social status is signified. But one thing that it does is it arguably widens the divide between the sexes. It makes it harder symbolically for women to um, seem to be politically competent. That wasn't true in Queen Elizabeth's era, for instance, Um, but it is in the early 1800s.
2: And so a specific piece of that then, um, how do high heels go from mm-hmm. being Louis the Sun King's favored um, kind of shoe to being exclusively for women?
1: Yeah, that's one of the um, interesting evolutions. So uh, one thing that we noticed until the period of the great masculine renunciation, you know, the mid 1700s, um, all of the... Biggest advances, the most fashionable styles, the sexiest styles are masculine styles, and women tend to follow. They copy little pieces of masculine style. But just you know, a really easy example is that men wear tights and trousers. Women remain draped below the waist until the early twentieth century. It's just almost um, mandatory. Women's attire is to be draped below the waist. So men are getting these new innovations, high heels are um, they're the footwear of Persian equestrians. They're, it's a heel that's designed to lock into a stirrup. And when these Persian equestrians are introduced into Europe, they are virile, they're very sexy. Um, and the men begin to copy that style. So it's a masculine style that expresses masculine power, martial power. Uh, but of course, over time, as fashion works, they become exaggerated. And so the high heels get larger, they're less functional, they're more symbolic. When you get to Louis the Sun King and his, you know, the, the famous portrait where he's wearing the bright red high heels, at that period of time, this becomes a powerful statement of um, aristocratic status, so much so that um, King Louis has to pass a decree that only people in his royal court are allowed to wear high heels, with red high heels, because everyone's copying them at that point, you know, again, in this, this mode of um, status emulation. Now, over time, women, some women, fashion-forward women, daring women, begin to adopt elements of masculine fashion. How much they can get away with is always a negotiation, and it's tense. Women will be severely punished for wearing certain elements of masculine fashion. And this has been a consistent through line, but um, some women will get away with adopting small elements of masculine fashion. And over time that will become mainstream feminine fashions. So you see this first in the context of um, the, uh, the, the, upper parts of women's garments where they adopt drape or excuse me, where they adopt tailored elements that's borrowed from men with men's wear, but then pretty soon you have tight bodices and tailored sleeves still draped below the waist. The women are also begin to adopt high heels and over a period of time, they become more and more associated with femininity because they're associated with conspicuous, um, Assertions of status. So when the great masculine renunciation begins to take hold, male high heels, high heels worn by men, are renounced in the same way that other forms of sumptuous showy attire for men begin to be renounced. Um, brocades and silks and bright colors, as you mentioned before. All these things start be, start to become associated with discredited old values and also with femininity.
2: And so men stop wearing them, which is such an odd thing to realize from the way that you've put it together. Again, we have these images that kind of if we looked at them properly, we'd realize something had happened. Um, but at least it took me reading this to go, oh, wait a second. Hang on, there's something happening here, and all of these pieces very much come together. And now, of course, we have the yes. lubitons, which are <laughs> yes. much exactly what the Sun King was going on about, um, that are very much for women in a lot of senses.
1: Yes, absolutely. I can't imagine that Christian Lubiton wasn't inspired by the, that famous portrait of um, Louis the Sun King in his red heels, that that mm-hmm. just becomes a very powerful status symbol. Except now, of course, it's a symbol of feminine sexuality rather than masculine sexuality. Mm.
2: So when you talk about things like Louis uh, had laws or rules saying, Hey, don't all jump on my bandwagon. You know, these heels are for me, they're fancy, they're special. There were a lot of laws like this that you talk about in the book regulating going back to Tudor England. There seemed to be a lot of these laws then of what fabrics different people could wear, and that sort of thing. Did people follow these rules? Was it effective?
1: Well, it was a mixed bag, I would say. Uh, there, the, From the late 1300s forward, you begin to see an explosion of sumptuary laws. And if you track the frequency with which these kinds of laws are passed – they, they really are passed at an accelerated rate through the early 1500s, let's say. Then they start to go into decline. Um, and this is true not only in England, but all over Europe, um, France, Spain, and the independent cities of the Italian peninsula. Lots of laws and, and, and it passed at this accelerating pace. One thing that's happening is that the elites are trying to keep up with changing fashions. So... A new fashion will emerge, it begins to express in a variety of things, but aristocratic status in particular, and then relatively well-off members of the common classes, uh, again, skilled artisans, uh, tradespeople, uh, financiers, uh, will adopt those fashions, and then there'll be a law trying to restrict their ability to wear them. Um, But the fashions keep changing. People find creative ways around them. Certainly some people defy the law, but I wouldn't want anyone to go away with the impression that the laws were not enforced. They were enforced. Um, There are examples, for instance, of people who have their clothing seized by the authorities. Um, One person had his garments ripped. Uh, He wore what were called a, a pair of trunk hose, which are these puffy kind of trousers that you might associate with um, Sir Walter Raleigh, let's say. They were uh, very fashionable in Tudor-era England. And um, this hapless individual had, uh, they, oh, I should have mentioned that they were um, stuffed they, with, with lining, so you could kind of puff them up and they made an even more dramatic statement. Um, and, and so this commoner who was wearing trunk hose that were considered to be outrageous and uh, um, contrary to good order had his clothing cut and the linings ripped out. And then with the, the linings, the silk linings trailing behind him, he was marched through the streets of London as an example uh, and, he would, and marched to his place of residence where the authorities searched and found other offending garments which were likewise um, cut and torn. So uh, the, uh, Queen Elizabeth, for instance, uh, passed a decree that Guards would be placed at the gates of cities with a list of people according to their social status, and they would check to see what they were wearing and make sure they were complying with the latest sumptuary laws. So they were taken seriously, and there were real criminal sanctions involved. There were monetary fines uh, as well. Um, having said that, people find found lots of ways to continue to use fashion in order to express what they wanted to. And I think two things were going on here. There was certainly an attempt of people to pass themselves off as aristocrats when they weren't. Uh, you know, the Florentine patriarch Cosimo de Medici, for instance, once remarked that one can make a gentleman with two yards of red silk. So there was this concern that anyone who could afford the appropriate clothing could um, pass themselves off as a member of the uh, aristocracy, and that happened. But in addition, and I think this was even more threatening to the power structure, what you had was an emergent bourgeois class um, that was using fashion in order to assert its own status and its own place in society. Many of these people who were ran afoul of sumptuary laws weren't trying to pass themselves off as aristocrats. Instead, they were claiming for themselves the kind of recognition, the kind of esteem that had previously been reserved to members of the aristocracy. And ultimately, I think that was much more threatening to the social order than people trying to pass themselves off because it was actually a challenge to the hierarchy itself. So these laws were enforced in a variety of ways. They were resisted in A variety of ways. And I'd also want to suggest that over time, formal legal sanctions were supplemented by and then ultimately replaced by more informal rules that nevertheless served the function of regulating what people could wear and uh, assigning meaning to clothing. So you get lots of uh, informal ideas about decent clothing that would regulate in particular what women could wear. Also ideas about um, social status as expressed through subtlety. And there were lots of etiquette guides that emerged in the 1800s and 1900s describing the kind of clothing that a well-bred gentleman or a well-bred lady would wear uh, those two I count as dress codes. They may not be enforced through the coercive power of government, but they were certainly enforced through social ostracism, through reputation.
0: Mm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Thank you for
2: kind of explaining that, because I think that's really important um, that we may not have laws that look quite the same today, um, but this idea of dress codes, I mean, the title of the book is certainly not only the raiding someone's house and slashing their clothing, yeah. um, as dramatic as that is. Um, But on this idea of kind of challenging the status quo, um, before we get to the 21st century, there's one other bit of the historical bit I'd like to ask about, which is rational dress reform, Uh, which I'd only been aware of on the women's side. Uh, I hadn't really been aware that there was a men's side. So I was wondering if you could explain kind of what was this particular challenge to the status quo and why did it fail?
1: Yes, well, as as we were discussing, uh, women's clothing was kind of, in a sense, stuck in the past. Men were getting this modernized, streamlined um, wardrobe, and women had a variety of changes in fashion, but all of which were defined by um, sumptuousness, flamboyant, and cumbersome attire. And women began to rebel against this. So there was a feminist movement on, um, you know, I I write about it on both sides of the Atlantic, um, the the, the United States and England, where women were resisting this kind of clothing in favor of what they described as rational dress. There was a rational dress society in England and in um, and in New England, in um, North America. Amelia Bloomer in the United States is probably the most famous figure for this, and she uh, devised a type of women's clothing that was a sort of pants uh, for women um, that were dubbed the Bloomers. Uh, There were manifestos written, there were conferences, there were newsletters, lots of activity around this. And indeed, the Bloomer became something of a popular fashion trend for a short period of time, but... It was ridiculed out of existence. So what you saw in the popular press was, um, you know, at first some magazines tentatively embracing this new trend and saying, oh, that's sensible or it might be a nice way for women to um, have more comfortable and practical clothing. But then a real backlash, a ferocious backlash in which it was mocked and ridiculed and you had um, people suggesting, well, next women will be smoking cigars and carrying canes and, you know, the women will be proposing marriage to the men and, you know, society will be turned upside down. And so it kind of got ridiculed out of existence. Um, And women's clothing continued to evolve in very slow and tentative ways toward modernity. Um, The first form of mass produced women's clothing, you know, unlike the Brooks Brothers suit, for instance, was the cage crinoline, which was designed to kind of mimic the layers and layers of petticoats that women would wear in order to have puffed up draped clothing. Um, So this was a steel cage that could be, you know, kind of draped by just a thin skin of fabric. Now, that's in one way in advance. It's less heavy um, and less cumbersome but you know, it still contains all of the symbolic um, messages of the older women's fashion. It's still cumbersome. Um, it's not a great advance. So these uh, feminist dress reform movements, when they were overtly political, it did fail. Now, I can give you an example of a women's dress reform movement that Succeeded, And what's interesting is that we don't consider this to be a political movement. Um, instead, we consider it to be a fashion trend. And that's in the 1920s and the emergence of what we think of as flapper fashions. So the flappers, uh, we now kind of imagine as frivolous um, jazz speakeasies in the United States. Um, you know, Daisy Buchanan from The Great Gatsby. But in fact, the flappers were, the flapper style started with working class women. They were a racially and ethnically diverse group of women. They were suffragists. They were people who were demanding a practical, streamlined women's fashion that in some ways mirrored the changes that men got during the great masculine renunciation, and These flapper fashions were the subjects of, again, a lot of ridicule, a lot of backlash, dress codes prohibiting the flapper fashions, all kinds of dire predictions about, again, the decline of civilization if women were allowed to wear these kind of streamlined, form-fitting clothing. Some people thought that they were um, scandalously sexy. One woman was called um, criminally attractive for wearing her flapper fashions and thought, you know, no man could be expected to resist the sexual temptation of a woman wearing a, um, you know, a slim skirt. And then other people said that they were ugly and masculine and that no woman wearing these fashions could hope to get a mate. So they were kind of inconsistent uh, and contradictory criticisms, but they took hold. And ultimately the flapper fashions were the first real successful Reform of women's attire in a modern direction. But it wasn't ex- an expressly political movement. Instead, it was more of an implicitly political movement.
2: Sneakiness, maybe, was the <laughs> successful um, bit. And in some ways, I think that's very much kind of something we still have this idea of what genders should be wearing it's there's sort of the explicit stuff but there's also a lot of change that happens without necessarily the kind of strict laws and written down policies um of course those are very much in sort of flux and intention so bringing this up to the 21st century how do you see both the sort of formal and informal dress codes we have now dealing with changing ideas of gender
1: Yes. In today's environment, I think the challenge of the traditional gender binary in uh, clothing and self presentation is one of the more striking developments. And now, this isn't entirely new. Uh, Throughout uh, history, certainly women traditionally borrowed lots of elements of masculine style, you know, since from the late middle ages forward, this is one of the ways that women's fashion had um, evolved in an era in which societies were um, quite dramatically dominated by men and, um, and, and masculine privilege. And in addition, there have been significant instances in which men's fashion have borrowed from women's, not as many historically, but some, So when you look, for instance, in the um, late 20th century at what um, fashion historians describe as the peacock revolution, a period in the 1960s where men are wearing kind of um, more flamboyant clothing, they might be wearing shirts with ruffles. There's a certain kind of um, romantic um, look to men's fashions during that period of time that's in a sense men borrowing from elements of women's fashion or elements that might be seen as feminine but in today's environment it's much more dramatic because you have two things going on one you have um a reuse of quite obviously gendered garments and a recombination in ways that disrupt or complicate the gender binary. Uh, You know, so men wearing skirts um, and other elements of of, or corsets, you know, other elements that had been for many, um, many generations had been considered exclusively feminine garments, women, men wearing high heels. Maybe that's kind of back to the future in a sense, but, um, you know, really quite obviously feminine um, clothing. Uh, but with no attempt to look feminine, instead it's just I'm a man wearing as- aspects of feminine clothing. Um, that's new. And at the same time, you have a move toward what you might describe as gender neutral or um, a, a gender ambiguous clothing, clothing that could be worn um, by, uh, by either gender or by people that identify with neither gender. And, um, no, again, that's not entirely new, but I think it's taken on a much greater significance and it's being advanced in, um, more, more domains and in a more kind of explicit and aggressive fashion in today's environment than ever before. So I think this complication of gender norms is a real change and one that's going to be exciting to watch moving forward.
2: Very exciting um, to watch, but probably also challenging in a lot of ways. Um, And one way in particular that you, I'm really pleased you raised in the book is uh, obviously yourself, a lot of people listening to this are in higher education. We have in a lot of senses, an educational job, but also a pastoral job in some senses. Mm. Um, and so we can't pretend that, well, I guess we could, but we probably shouldn't pretend that mm. dress codes don't exist in today's world. Um, that's probably not a great idea. But mm. how do we maybe as educators think about how do we talk to our students about this?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because I think you're absolutely right to say that dress codes still exist. We still care about what people wear, although we express it in different ways. You know, in in the academy, uh, one dress code is the norm that fashion is trivial and that serious and high-minded people don't care about it. So very often, almost inevitably, when I would give... A talk about this, uh, there would be at least one person who would say, well, I, I don't know anything about fashion, but um, you know, here's my question or here's my comment. But it was important for them to flag first off, I don't know anything about it. I don't spend my time on this kind of trivial um, stuff. Now, that requires one to dress in a particular way, in a way that would signify that you don't care uh, and to avoid things that might look like you do care too much. And so um, that's really just the contemporary version of the great masculine renunciation. It's you know another way of saying serious, sober, practical, responsible, industrious people don't waste their time with fashion. So I think that's a dress code, and it's one that is particularly um, particularly challenging for women who are expected by longstanding social norms to care about how they look. To be fashionable, just in order to be presentable, but also are in an environment in which the norm is to look like you don't care about fashion. So there's a gendered problem with respect to that. And one of the things I mentioned in the book are some female academics who were struggling with how to navigate that—that they were criticized for being too feminine or too girly—and you know when that was to their mind, just presentable dress, but also women who would be criticized for being too frumpy or not put together. Um, so we've got all these dress codes even now. Now, how do you talk to your students about it? That's a real challenge because in today's environment, it's very sensitive and to um, to be seen, to criticize what someone's wearing can be quite fraught. And yet... People will enter professional environments in which there are very important norms about dress and subtleties, things, um, subtleties of cut, subtleties of fit are really important. You know, I teach at a law school and going into the legal profession, there's a really narrow range of appropriate attire that you can wear as a lawyer and be taken seriously. Now, it's changed over time. And in some way, those changes, which have made it more casual, um, have reduced or eliminated formal and explicit dress codes. In some way, those changes make it harder to know exactly what to wear. But the rules are still there. And there are a lot of ways that people can go wrong in what they're wearing. So I think it's a real challenge to navigate that. And it is a challenge for us as educators to talk to our students about what might be expected of them in the professional world without, um, you know, without coming across as either snobbish or judgmental or um, sexist. All those are real challenges.
2: Yeah, or limiting their self-expression, right? That's another... Yes,
1: or limiting their self-expression, which is, you know, kind of a, a paramount value, even as at the same time that self-expression is always conditioned by a whole series of social norms and expectations.
2: Exactly. Well, and speaking of kind of what we do with the current dress codes um, and the self-expression side, I think it is time to come back to the modern fashion industry, as we mentioned earlier, um, because you make a really interesting argument that while we might have seen historically that sumptuary codes, dress codes, rules about who's meant to wear what, um, inhibited personal expression to a degree, you consider that today, in fact, a lot of our current dress codes, written or unwritten, Ally with fashion rather than working against them,
1: take us through this yes, well, I mean in a few ways, one development that really be- it did begin in the late middle ages but is accelerated dramatically in recent years is the relationship between fashion and individual expression so fashion's always been allied with individualism in my view since the birth of fashion um, it's been one of the great drivers of fashion has been the desire of individuals to express themselves through what they're wearing. Um, at the same time, it was always in conversation with the use of fashion to express social status and group membership and things along these lines. Um, in today's environment, I think there's not only a um, perceived right to self-expression, but almost a perceived obligation to um individual self-expression and so people are expected to look authentic in how they dress and someone who instead looks contrived or um, slavishly adhering to some kind of formal dress code might be treated with some suspicion in a lot of environments so there's this this um, expectation that one is expressive through their clothing in some way. And that's quite tightly allied to changing fashion trends and the kind of dynamism of the fashion system where people are always searching for something new because the kinds of clothing that can be both sufficiently idiosyncratic to express oneself, but also sufficiently familiar to communicate something, will pretty quickly get adopted by a lot of people. And when they're adopted by too many people, then they're not idiosyncratic anymore. And so you need to move to something new. Um, So that's one way that our contemporary norms about dress are really allied to the fashion industry. I mean, another more straightforward way would be in thinking about the relationship between status and scarcity. Now, in the late Middle Ages and Renaissance, scarcity and status were tied to the um, objective cost of the garments. So imported garments, um, colors that were difficult to manufacture, precious metals and gems, these expressed high status because everyone understood that they were rare and expensive. Then the the problem of course came about when people um, of different social statuses could begin to afford those things and so the status Um, communication was complicated. Now, in today's environment, you have mass production, lots of things that can be produced relatively cheaply, fast fashion. Um, One way that status continues to be expressed is through branding, trademarks. So... One way that you know for certain that a particular garment is somewhat exclusive and somewhat expensive is if it carries the brand of a high fashion designer. And we know that not because it's inherently expensive to manufacture, it may or may not be, but because the law provides um, an exclusive exclusive right to use that mark to a particular brand so you know if you see a polo pony on a polo shirt that that's a ralph lauren shirt and it can't have been that the person bought it for ten dollars at target they had to have bought it for 150 at a ralph lauren boutique uh, similarly with a handbag that has louis vuitton um, you do trademarks uh, all over it um, so these are new ways of, uh, of fashion signifying status uh, and they are very much allied to the prestige of the fashion industry.
2: Thank you for explaining those linkages, because it's it's really interesting to kind of think about how that's changed. And um, especially in this idea of looking authentic and looking idiosyncratic, we don't always think about kind of the structural forces behind that, but... Um, but that kind of leads me to my penultimate question. Of Obviously, the title of the book is Dress Codes. We've talked about them restricting um, identity. We've talked about them in the most uh, recent times, influencing sort of shopping habits and how people present themselves. Uh, clearly, dress codes aren't going anywhere. So can we, and if so, how, can we make better dress codes?
1: Yes, I think we can make better dress codes. And... The first step, as you suggest, is that we recognize that dress codes aren't going anywhere. We recognize that fashion isn't trivial. It's important both for social um, significance and for individual expression. And that we do make judgments about people based on what they wear, even when we claim that we're not making judgments. And in fact, those judgments can be all the more powerful, and all the more dangerous when they're unacknowledged. Um, They can be more powerful because we don't even recognize why it is that we're making a particular judgment about an individual, and they can be more dangerous because we don't recognize um, the ways in which those judgments might reinforce uh, social hierarchies and inequities that we otherwise would profess to oppose. So explicitness and um, self-awareness about dress codes would be a first step. You know, when people, for instance, in the Silicon Valley that often considers itself very woke, um, when they say, "I don't care what people wear; I only care about you know the content of their coding," um, but here's you know, example: Mark Zuckerberg wears a gray T-shirt. You know, it was kind of a famous part of his uniform, um, and that was seen as quite unassuming and expressing this ethos that we don't care about fashion and you know anything goes um but then he says here's what he says he says the reason i wear a gray t-shirt is because wasting your time on things that are trivial like fashion dissipates your energy and i wouldn't be doing my job as the ceo of facebook if i wasted energy on that now if you think about it what does that say does that say we don't care about the gray t-shirt or does it Great, the gray t-shirt become a symbol of the work ethic and of a certain kind of industriousness. I think it's the latter. And if that's true, then there's a subtle judgment about anyone, for instance, who wears clothing that looks like they did spend time on trivial things. And sure enough, you see this taking hold, particularly in the case of women in Silicon Valley. So the, um, the Yahoo CEO, Marissa Mayer, wore a fashionable outfit in a um, Vogue magazine. She's just, you know, a fashionable woman who likes fashion. Um, She gets a chance to be in Vogue magazine. Who wouldn't take it? So she does. And she's trashed in Silicon Valley. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that no one cares or that we're indifferent. Instead, they say, look at that. She looks like she's going out to a party or on vacation while everyone else is working. So it's those kind of subtle dress codes that I think we could do better about by being more explicit about why we might require a certain kind of self-presentation because we do care about what those norms of professionalism and respectability look like. And to be aware of the way in which they could reinforce other hierarchies. How do women fit into our ideals about um, professionalism and the way people should dress? What about people of color who are often new to um, professions and are just entering? How about social class status? And in what ways do our norms reflect an assumption about the way people have been raised and about what they understand to be appropriate attire that may not extend to everybody. If we were more self-aware, I think we could do a better job.
2: I generally approve of more self-awareness, and I think there's some very clear (laughs) reasons outlined there um, why it would be beneficial in this particular case. Um, But before I let you go, I do have one final question. Uh, The book obviously came out in 2021. Is there anything you've been working on since or working on now or looking to work on in the future? Anything else that you're doing that you'd like to make our audience aware of?
1: Sure. I mean, I've been working on lots of things in the race relations space, but um, the, the, my big project now is a what I'm tentatively calling the law of vice. And it's, it's in line with my concerns about the way law regulates everyday life. But I want to look at the category of vices and vice crimes, you know, in particular, um, drugs and mind altering substances um, sex work, and gambling, and how though that category of transgressions has been treated historically, why we've treated it that way. I'm at the beginning of the project, but um, what I can say is that my working hypothesis is that the regulations around vices, which dealt with the intimacies of everyday life, were prototypes for much broader types of regulations that have affected the development of Um, increasingly urbanized and industrialized civilizations. And so looking at why we would regulate things that um, many people would describe as victimless crimes, um, what the importance was, what values were being expressed through regulating vices, and then also the techniques that were used to regulate vice and how those spread in other areas of society. Um, That's a project I'm currently just beginning to work on. So, you know, it'll probably be another five years before the book comes out.
2: Well, it sounds fascinating. So when it does come out, we'll have to have you back to tell us all about it. Um, but while, you are, while you're while you are working on that, uh, listeners can read the book we've mainly been talking about, again, titled Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. Richard, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation.